Hello, I'm Peter Goodwin. Welcome to Audio News Review from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. In this special series of audio news, we're bringing you interviews on the most significant global health issues of the last few months. Later in the programme, the hope of eradicating polio with a more effective vaccine and improving guidelines for treating pneumonia, especially when HIV is also a factor. But we begin with tuberculosis. While I was in Lima, Peru, a short while ago, I caught up with the author of a New England Journal of Medicine publication that seems to open the door for rapid, cheap, widespread testing for TB in the developing world. The so-called MODS test short for Microscopic Observation Drug Susceptibility, has proved to be better and faster than even the most costly technology-intensive diagnostic assays currently being used. A massive investigation with nearly 4,000 sputum samples was conducted in Peru. And as an outreach clinic for street children in downtown Lima, David Moore told me more about the MODS test. First, I asked him why his team wanted to get a new assay for TB. TB and drug-resistant TB, particularly multidrug-resistant TB, are increasing problems throughout the world, um, but more so than ever in developing countries and countries with high burdens of HIV disease. Uh, and 95% of the TB in the world is diagnosed by sputum smear microscopy, which is the test that's now over 100 years old and which, although uh, inexpensive and relatively easy to do, misses half of incident TB cases and gives us no information about drug susceptibility. So the idea of the MODS test is to bridge that gap and, and bring the standards that we expect in the uh, industrialised world with TB culture and, and drug susceptibility testing to the settings where they're most needed. Now, the exciting thing, it seems to me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is that not only is your MODS test apparently better than the existing tests in poor resourced situations, but it seems to be even better than tests existing when you have a lot of money to spend. Yeah, that seems to be the case from the, from the data that we, we got from the study. We deliberately chose a uh, developing world, if you will, gold standard in uh, Lowenstein-Jensen culture with proportion method drug susceptibility testing and also a uh, industrialised world gold standard which was automated culture and drug susceptibility testing in the MB-BAC-T system. And, uh, and MODS outperformed both of these systems, both in terms of time to positive diagnosis uh, and in terms of cost. Can you describe the study to me? Certainly. It's very important when you're evaluating a new diagnostic test that you prove that it works in all the important target groups because there are certainly the possibility that tests can perform well in some groups but not so well in other groups. So uh, the reality of, uh, of TB programs around the world is that patients present to health centres with a cough uh, and all of those patients will undergo smear microscopy. So we took a large group of those unselected patients presenting for TB diagnosis. But recognising that perhaps uh, a culture-based assay wouldn't necessarily be applicable to all of those patients, we, uh, we also took a subgroup of that, of that patient group, which were patients with identified risk factors for TB or drug-resistant TB, to see if we could get uh, more positive cultures for the number of samples that we processed. And finally, because HIV is an important uh, risk factor for TB and uh, TB that's associated with HIV can present in a rather different way, we thought it important to in include a, an HIV group and we took hospitalised HIV patients regardless of their symptoms and examined the performance in that group as well. And what came out of this uh, very multifaceted and comprehensive study? Well, the important thing, firstly, is that there was no difference, um, regardless of which group we looked at, the, the performance of MODS was, uh, was equally good in all three groups. So 
Uh, if we look at all the data together, we found that the sensitivity of MODS culture was significantly higher, as we had expected it to be, than Lowenstein-Jensen culture, but also significantly higher than the automated liquid culture uh, using MBBAC T. Those results were available in a median of seven days as opposed to 13 for the automated culture and 26 for Lowenstein-Jensen culture. And why is this so much more speedy than the traditional solid medium method taking perhaps two months and even the liquid-based methods which could be available in a couple of weeks? One of the nice things about MODS is it, it, there's no magic behind it. Uh, it's been known for a long time that uh, TB grows in this characteristic tangling way in liquid culture uh, and that TB grows much more quickly in liquid media than it does in solid media. So that was no surprise to us. The automated systems uh, require a certain threshold of growth before detection can be um, validated, whereas when you're looking down the microscope you have much more scope for determining whether a culture is positive or negative. Uh, there certainly is the possibility that if a, uh, a new reader or a new laboratory te technician was examining the um, plates under the microscope, they might uh, rather prematurely uh, identify TB as being present. The advantage of this system is that you can then, if you're unsure, wait another day and the following day the characteristic tangles appear. So the specificity, if you like, of, and the sensitivity of the test were well over 98% uh, in all the categories. So uh, we confirmed all the presence of mycobacterium tuberculosis with molecular tests uh, and there were no false positive diagnoses. What about the information on drug susceptibility that you get from your test? In addition to uh, being more sensitive than sputum smear and more sensitive than other culture methods, the MODS test also does di direct drug susceptibility testing. That is to say, rather than wait until we have a strain from which we have to do a subculture and then uh, d drug susceptibility testing, we get the drug susceptibility test data directly from the inoculation of the sputum sample. And this buys us a lot of time and avoids a lot of dangerous or unsafe uh, manipulation of, of the TB strain in the laboratory. Therefore, the time to a positive drug susceptibility test result in MODS is the same as the time to a positive culture. In other words, a median of seven days. Whereas with our automated system, that's a median of 22 days. And with Lowenstein-Jensen and the conventional proportion methods testing, we're up to 68 days. So it, it buys us a lot of time and avoids a lot of uh, laboratory manipulation of, of cultured strains. This obviously and evidently works very elegantly in your hands. What about using it elsewhere? Okay, so that's obviously the key question, is what we're working on at the moment. Uh, we're rolling MODS out in the uh, TB program in Peru to uh, five provincial cities. We've done some pilot work in, in two cities in the south of Peru uh, and one hospital in the centre of Lima and have had very encouraging results in both of those settings where the results have been highly concordant with their um, existing drug susceptibility testing methods. Uh, it doesn't take long to train someone between one and two weeks um, and uh, so far we've been very encouraged by, by the rollout to, to service laboratories. David Moore from London's Imperial College and Hammersmith Hospital talking to me at the clinic called Lima Kids in downtown Lima, Peru. And Derek Thorne has more on improving TB detection. Derek. A study published in The Lancet suggests that a very cost-effective intervention could significantly improve tuberculosis detection in women. In many developing countries, the smear-positive case detection of TB is much lower for women than men, and a team from the UK and Pakistan hypothesised that this might be explained by a difference in sputum quality. They then decided to do a controlled trial involving 1,500 men and 1,500 women, and they split each population into two groups, one control group who were given no specific instructions on how to produce a sputum sample, and one intervention group who got a comprehensive explanation from a lady health worker.
I got more on this from Michelle Kahn of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And she began by telling me about the four points that the lady health worker would explain to the patient. The first was that it's important to submit sputum rather than saliva and also tell them how to be able to spot the difference visually so they know when they've got a good specimen to submit to the laboratory. The second point was the, the technique of how to do this and the third point was there's a specific volume requirement so we pointed out on the container approximately 5 ml and requested that patients to try and submit this much because that would aid the diagnosis and finally explained to them the importance of returning the next morning with an early morning specimen and the importance of this was that is that in, in this setting and in several poor countries, the financial burden of returning the next day with a specimen is quite high on patients. So explaining to them the importance of this, we thought would increase the compliance. So you did this in both 1,500 men and 1,500 women. So what did you find in those two? We found that in women, the impact was far more significant, very, very significant. The case detection rate was increased by 63% in instructed women relative to controls. And in men, it was increased also um, 18%. But as you know, as you can see, it's not as significant and wasn't statistically significant. So what that showed was that the impact, instructions had a very large impact on smear positivity in women. Now, this must have some implications. But firstly, I'm interested to know why you think this is the case. Why is it that women do have this kind of, you know, lesser efficiency of detection? Well, as far as the study was concerned, two of the secondary outcomes that we looked at our, the, the sputum quality, which we defined as whether the sputum is, uh, whether the specimen was salivary or whether it was true sputum that was submitted. And we saw that in women there was a significant increase in the sputum specimens. So w one reason is that the, the actual quality of the specimen was improving, which therefore led to a higher smear positive case detection rate. The other um, endpoint that we were tracking was whether patients did return with a, with a second s specimen. And again, in, in women, there was a significant increase in patients that came back with a, a second specimen. And this, these, both of these outcomes weren't significant in men. So those are two reasons. Furthermore, because the increase was so large, we think that there may, there may be other reasons as well. And these reasons could be that women feel less comfortable coughing in a public place producing sputum and instructions may have helped them overcome that or understand how to do this. Physically they may be less able to produce a deep specimen which is required for TB diagnosis so again some coaching and instructions on how to do this may have helped. So what do you think the implications are here then? I mean, are you recommending that people should try and you know, pursue this method of, of, of getting the, the, the sputum sample? Well, the, the um, cost effectiveness of this intervention was very high as well. It, it was about two US dollars per extra case detected. And so for every 30 patients instructed in our study, there was one extra case detected. And we think that the, ge the generalizability is quite high because in this center, it was, it's a very large center and we had patients from coming from virtually the whole country. So I think in resource poor settings where patients perhaps have a low education level and there's a lot of saliva being submitted and therefore that saliva is not being able to be tested, this could be an intervention that really improves case detection. Okay, and, and do you think then that it could be applied to other countries? 
I, I do, and, and as I said, it, it, to, to instruct, to, to train the, the lady health worker to give instructions only took half a day. And in many countries, I know, I know Pakistan is one of these, there are a lot of trained lady health workers available. So it doesn't take a lot of resource or training to implement this. Could you also tell us a bit about the, um, the, the time it took to do this study and, and, and the fact that you did actually get quite a significant result out of it? Yes. So the actual period of collecting data was just over two months. And we were able to randomize over 3,000 patients in this. So I think that just goes to show that in a good research environment, such as the Federal TV Center in Pakistan, where there's a high patient burden, significant trials can be done in quite a short time. Michelle Khan, who worked with the Federal TB Center in Pakistan in collaboration with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And Derek has more news from India. A new study published in The Lancet has provided evidence that a monovalent poliovirus vaccine could be three times more effective than the older trivalent vaccine, and that it could help us achieve global eradication of the disease. The monovalent vaccine is targeted at type 1 poliovirus, and it's this type which has persisted in India and Egypt, two of the six countries that have failed to eradicate polio. An outbreak of polio in northern India in 2006 presented an opportunity to investigate the effectiveness of this vaccine. And so a team led by Nicholas Grassley of Imperial College London started a case control study to look at this exact question. The study featured around 2,000 matched case control pairs and he told me more about the design. Routine surveillance data is collected on all cases of acute flaccid paralysis in India um, and a small fraction of those cases are due to polio. The remainder are unrelated to polio caused by Guillain-Barre syndrome, for instance, or trauma. And so there's an opportunity to use those non-polio cases of paralysis as a control group to the polio cases. And because we know the number of doses of vaccine received by controls and by cases, we can do a standard case control method to estimate the efficacy of the vaccine. And so what do those case controls uh, compare to the actual cases? What, what do they tell you about the effectiveness of that monovalent vaccine? Okay, so the monovalent vaccine is three times more effective per dose than the standard trivalent vaccine in protecting against paralysis from type 1 poliovirus. So that's the clinical efficacy of the vaccine. Now, in this setting in northern India, we, we showed in some research published last year that the oral vaccine tends to work less well, um, the reason being that um, many of the children have diarrhea or other infections. And so if you give them this live oral vaccine, they don't become infected with the vaccine virus, and so they don't mount an effective immune response, and they're not protected against subsequent disease. And that meant that with this standard vaccine, the fraction of children protected per dose of vaccine was just 10%. With this new monovalent vaccine, you're talking about 30% of children protected per dose. So if you can get the number of doses up to around four, five, six, then you, you, you have a good chance of protecting that child against paralysis, whereas with a, just a 10% efficacy, you had many children who remain susceptible to paralysis. Well, yes, I mean, 30% certainly is a good improvement, and yet do you believe that it could be even better in areas where, you know, for example, the conditions are better? Absolutely. So um, in, in outside these two northern states, so Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, where transmission persists, polio is being controlled in India. Um, and in fact, if we look at the efficacy of the standard trivalent vaccine in that part of India, it's 25 to 30% per dose. Um, and so it seems like with that efficacy, we were able to stop polio transmission and prevent reintroduction of polio and, and spread of polio subsequently. So in that kind of setting, one would also hope that the monovalent 
vaccine is also disproportionately more effective. The challenge, of course, is that polio is always going to persist in those places where both the transmission of poliovirus is favoured, but also the transmission of other viruses and other infections that cause diarrhoea, for instance, um, are prevalent and so interfere with the, the efficacy of the vaccine. Could this ultimately then lead to um, you know, the ultimate goal of eradication of polio, and, and, and if so, how? Um, I mean, that's certainly the hope. Poliovirus type 2 has been eradicated globally, and the last case was in fact reported from northern India in, in 1999. Now, the standard vaccine in a developing country setting, the trivalent oral vaccine, tends to work much better against type 2 poliovirus than against the two other types. So using, with widespread use of that trivalent vaccine, we have eradicated wild virus type 2. So uh, it appears that the eradication of poliovirus uh, or wild poliovirus is, is feasible. The goal, of course, is to then do that against the other types against which the standard vaccine was less efficacious. With this new monovalent vaccine, with a greater efficacy, there's a good hope for, for eradicating wild poliovirus transmission. And, and what should actually be done with that <coughs> monovalent vaccine? I mean, should it be rolled out, essentially, or is it already being rolled out? Um, it is already being rolled out. It's being used um, in India and it's being used also in, in Nigeria, where uh, there's ongoing transmission. Stopping transmission in these remaining countries is really a, a major priority for the Global Eradication Initiative because transmission in these places has led to export of infection to other countries which had previously stopped poliovirus transmission. And if those countries had low vaccine coverage, an outbreak of poliovirus transmission, which then needed to be controlled with, with an outbreak response, and the costs associated with that are, are very, very high. Nicholas Grassley from the Department of Infectious Disease Epidemiology at Imperial College London. He was talking there to our correspondent, Derek Thorne. Another disease now, a recent Lancet publication highlights the need for better guidelines for detecting and treating pneumonia. Here's Derek Thorne again. Pneumonia is the leading cause of child mortality worldwide, and now new data collected in South Africa suggest that for children under one year, current World Health Organization guidelines are insufficient and should be revised. This comes out of a study published in The Lancet, in which the investigators tried to find predictors of treatment failure for 350 children admitted to hospital with severe pneumonia. One of the predictors they looked at was HIV status, and that's because the original guidelines for pneumonia treatment in children were drawn up in 1990, before the HIV pandemic occurred. However, this wasn't the only predictor that gave an important result. With more, here's Lisa McNally, who worked with the Institute of Child Health in London and the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban. The predictors of 48-hour treatment failure were children being under one year of age, Infants under one year had uh, over 40% of them failed by 48 hours as opposed to only 17% over a year. And the other really important predictors were HIV infection in the child. If the child was HIV uninfected but their mother was HIV infected, that's what we call HIV exposed uninfected. The known WHO predictors of failure to response, which is called very severe disease, and finally, polymicrobial disease. So children who had more than one organism isolated were more likely to fail treatment. And in non-responders, 70% of children had two organisms or more. It seems interesting that you found that HIV exposed were also affected um, worse by the pneumonia. Why, why do you mm. think that happened? We think that it might be for one of three reasons. Firstly, 
these children live in an environment where their mothers are HIV infected, their fathers are probably HIV infected, and so we think that they were ex probably exposed to more pathogens that can cause pneumonia than HIV uninfected children. But also there's quite a lot of evidence now that children of HIV infected mothers have slightly altered immune systems in two ways. Firstly, uh, there is some evidence that their cell-mediated immunity is slightly altered by having been exposed to HIV in utero, but also they, have, they receive less protective antibodies from their HIV-infected mothers, and it's possible that this could have had an effect. So what change should, uh, should these results bring about then, if any, at the moment? Well, I think that there are three main changes that need to occur. The first is that we bring a halt to the HIV pandemic and reverse it as quickly as possible in as many multifaceted ways as possible. We need to treat mothers actively in their pregnancy if they require it for their own HIV infection. And we need to ensure that the infants of HIV-infected mothers commence cotrimoxazole prophylaxis as per WHO guidelines. Secondly, for the treatment of pneumonia, we know that pneumonia remains the leading cause of child mortality worldwide. So there needs to be a better awareness of pneumonia in the general population, but we also urgently need to optimize pneumonia care. Now that needs to be coordinated preferably by the World Health Organization. There are also methods uh, such as vaccination of preventing pneumonia, and we need to go out there and start vaccinating as many children worldwide as possible with haemophilus influenzae type B vaccine and pneumococcal conjugate vaccines. And finally, our paper showed that uh, polymicrobial infection is really important in those children who fail to respond. And therefore, we need to be able to better diagnose the causes of pneumonia, the etiology of pneumonia in children who present, so have better microbiological backup and preferably bedside diagnostic tests. I mean, certainly, I, I think if all of those things are achieved, then the world will be a much better place. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, um, as, as far as kind of immediate things go as mm -hmm. well, I mean, you mentioned in the paper the uh, WHO guidelines not mm. really being sufficient at the moment. Mm. I mean, can they change immediately, do you think? I don't think they can change immediately. I would call upon uh, WHO to arrange an urgent meeting to discuss where we're at and how we should move forward. Lisa McNally from the GlaxoSmithKline Company's laboratory in Belgium. She led the study that was done with the Institute of Child Health in London and the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban. She was talking there with Derek Thorne. And that's all from this roundup of interviews from Audio News Review. We'll be back with more news for medical professionals all over the world very soon. Till then, from me, Peter Goodwin, on behalf of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, goodbye. <laughs>